0: Hosea 11, 1 through 7. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes the oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. Let's pray for the sermon together. Almighty Father, I humbly ask that you would speak through me words of truth and goodness from you. And we humbly ask that you would open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive those words of truth and goodness and even to live them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we're going to start a new sermon series today. It has a very eloquent and sophisticated title. And by eloquent and sophisticated, I mean kind of pre-K. Pre-K? <laughs> the title of the sermon series is, What is... Dot, dot, dot. What is... Here's the origin of the sermon series and what it's about. I was talking recently to a child about the Lord's Prayer and explaining it and asking and answering her questions. We got to the part, hallowed be thy name. She said, what is hallowed? And I said, well, it means basically holy. And she said, oh, great. What is holy? (laughs) And I answered. Sophisticated ways. But I didn't feel entirely satisfied. And I've thought this often. As I'm reading or as I'm singing songs, there's a lot that we say or sing or pray, and we don't even quite know really what it means. Mm -hmm. So today is gonna be what is sin. Now, introductory word about doctrine. Probably many of you are feeling this way About this sermon series and about today, what is sin? Oh, great! That is because of our ambivalence towards doctrine, and I get this. Many years ago, a friend of mine sent me an article from one of these humor websites. It's not The Onion. It's not The Onion because I looked for it. I searched. I can't find it. Can't find it in my emails. So I'm going to do the worst thing ever. I'm going to paraphrase a joke. Here it was, it was a satire and it was a fake interview told from the perspective of someone after the apocalypse, the one person that made it through, made it into the new heavens and new earth was saved. The one person and it was an interview and they were interviewing him, and they said, how did you get that last one right? And he's like, well, the Trinity part was okay. That was hard. But yeah, I almost tripped up on the predestination part. And when I got through that, and you know, it was like this entrance exam based on doctrine. And it captured kind of sort of how some of us feel when doctrine gets esoteric and abstract and what, overly systematic. I get that, I get that. In fact, one of my favorite books on the gospel of Matthew by a scholar named Ulrich Lutz has this phrase that I always talk about and I always think about. And he says, what we need is a corrective in our Western churches to our superabundance of doctrine. We need a little more living, a little less doctrine was his point. I get that. I get that. Karl Barth, who was a famous theologian in the 20th century. This is apocryphal. Again, I couldn't find it, but it's still a good story. He was supposedly asked about his view on warfare. And he was, by all accounts, it seems by what he was saying in teaching and writing, a pacifist. And they said, are you a pacifist? He said, no, I'm not. Because if I said yes, what I would be committing to is pacifism. I'm committed to God. Okay. Doctrine. We have some negative associations. But. It is essential, I think, that we know what God we're worshiping. We do say creeds every week. Now they're short. That's revealing. But they're there. And I've said this a lot. Here's the other thing about doctrine. We have to know what we mean when we talk about Christ's love, especially in our day and age. Is love a matter of having our desires, biological, emotional, and psychological fulfilled? Our society would say, that is love. That is not what we are talking about when we talk about the self-giving, sacrificial love who laid down his life for us. So doctrine helps us know what we're talking about. My argument today is, I think we have to really be careful when we talk about sin because talking about it the wrong way leads us subtly implicitly to think about our God in the wrong way here's where I want to start what is sin here's what we're not going to talk about sin is a lot of things in the Bible a lot of things it's a lot of ways it's spoken of It's Israel's disloyalty to the covenant with God. It is a stain that we want God to wash away, wipe away, or purify us from like we sang today. It is ritual impurity in the cult. It is an enslaving power. It is a state in which humans live before they are in Christ. All of those things are true. Each of them is a sermon unto itself. What we're going to do is we're going to bracket those, and I want to just talk about three of the major ways the Bible talks about sin that I think are incredibly important for us. Number one, sin is a weight, and I've listed three examples. When I was in high school, my father died suddenly on a Sunday afternoon of a heart attack when I was a junior next thing I know, my mom is sending me to the cardiologist because I had an irregular heartbeat that we kind of just sort of said, ah, it's okay, it's fine. And then when your dad dies, all of a sudden, maybe no, you should get that checked out. So my mom sends me to the cardiologist and they couldn't figure out what my irregular heartbeat was. So they gave me this, this big old heart monitor and I had to attach it to myself when I played basketball and I had to try to play with this big old thing. And I was 17 years old and I tried it for two weeks and I was having none of that because it was weighty. Might have been the lamest sermon, sermon example ever. <laughs> sin is a weight. So sin here under this metaphor, except I'm going to argue it's not really a metaphor, is a burden that we bear. Is something we carry around with us and forgiveness is lifting it away. Sin has mass and weight. It is a thing. It is real. It is something that is created. Now, here's the interesting thing. This is probably the most common way that sin is talked about in the Old Testament. And you will not know that because English translations don't do it. They don't do a literal translation to bear, to bear away, to take away, to carry the weight of. Instead, they often just translate it as to forgive, a sin, instead of to lift it or carry it away. Let's talk about the scapegoat. Leviticus 16, 21 through 22 on your handout. Let me read this for us. This is probably the best example in the Old Testament of how sin is a weight. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the head of of the goat and sending it away into the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a barren region and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. What is going on here? This is sin as an actual real thing that has been created that needs to be taken away. This is sin as a weight. Put the sin. You put the weight on the goat so that he can carry it away to the wilderness. Now, this was thought of probably scholars suspect by the Israelites as going far, far away into this nether region where God doesn't see. Now, we may find that problematic, but nonetheless, the point is to take it so far away, like the east is from the west, that it's gone, that it's removed, that it doesn't exist anymore. That's the idea of this. Incidentally, you know where the term scapegoat comes from? There are two goats in Leviticus 16. There are two goats. I just told you about one. You take two goats, and one of them is going to become the sacrifice that is slaughtered for the sin offering. And the other one is going to become this animal that that the priest puts the sins on and sends out into the wilderness. How do you decide? Aaron casts lots the priest cat slots for which goat is which of the two, which one dies and which one walks out of the camp. The one that walks out of the camp, I just read you is the one that escapes being killed. That's where scapegoat comes from. Again, that has nothing to do with today, but I thought it was interesting. Okay. Why does it matter so much that sin is described as a thing, as a weight, as having mass, as something that is created and that is real? Well, honestly, I think it matters because it's a burden that we can't take away. Once it's created, once it's on us, once it, how do you carry it off? How do you take it away? It's something that we have to have Jesus actually remove and crush and destroy and make not exist anymore. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. Micah 7.19 says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. In other words, he stomps on them and crushes them. He will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. We have healing prayer as an important part of this church. In fact, we invite people to come up and pray for healing, among other things, every week. Here's my view of healing. When we pray for healing, what we are praying for is God to come down, to intervene, to be there, to do something supernatural that only he can do. But here's the thing. When we think about healing prayer, we think about, rightly so, things like cancer or malfunctioning hearts or, you know, physical ailments that we want God to directly heal. But I think it's no less supernatural and it's no less healing when God takes our sins and bears them away from us. Number two, sin is debt. Here's the idea in some way, shape, or form, which we'll talk about in a minute. Whenever humans sin, they create a debt. We owe God obedience, and when we don't obey, we are put into his debt. Sin as debt. And there are many examples. I've listed three on your handout. This is from the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. Or the parable of the unmerciful servant, you remember that one? The servant who's forgiven, his debt is canceled of thousands of talents. What does he do? He goes out and demands the person who owes him much less money to pay up. And God says, no, no, don't you get the idea of canceled debt? Your debt was canceled. Why would you not cancel the debts of others? This is the question that Jesus asked Peter. Two men have their debts forgiven. Which one loves him more? I suppose the one who was forgiven more, who had more of his debt canceled. Sin is debt is all over Christian thought. Let me read you Colossians 2, uh, 2, 13 through 14. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. That's the idea that we owed something. There was this ledger, this record, this set of debts that Christ canceled for us. becomes, in Christian thought later, one of the most notable ways to think about why Jesus did what he did on the cross and what he was doing. You've probably heard something like this. This goes all the way back to Anselm of Canterbury, Archbishop of Canterbury. I put his dates down there. And here was his argument. This is interesting. He said, as humans, we owe God our obedience. When we fail to give him obedience, we fall into debt to him. And when that happens, we have no way to pay that debt. As a human... Jesus did not sin. So he didn't fall into debt. His account was debt free. And more than this, when he sacrificed himself on the cross to pay the debt that we owed, he went above and beyond any obligation he had and he accrued this great merit. And he passes that on to us. That merit, that act of grace, he gives us that So that we pay all of our debts. Is that what's going on on the cross? I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that we have to be careful when we talk about sin as debt. I think there's a good way to do that and a not good way to do that. And Christians have done both. Let me explain. Here's a risk that we run when we talk about sin as debt. We can think and live as if our lives are a ledger, and if we just work hard enough to be good enough or not bad enough, it can kind of come out just above some threshold. Here's another risk we risk viewing God as a meticulous accountant. Here's another risk. We risk viewing the law as ultimate rather than God as ultimate. I'll say more about that in the final part of the sermon. Here's the good way to think about that. I'm going to get you lawyers excited here. When I was in law school, Set through a bankruptcy class. My professor said, the moment you're on your bicycle and you're pedaling down the street and a car comes out and hits you and it's their fault, a contingent, unliquidated debt is created at that moment. What? Here's the idea. And here's how debt helps us. What is debt in our legal system? How does this work when you talk about something like torts, wrongs, like I just talked about? The idea is, at its core, relational. Someone has done something that deprives someone else of something they rightly do. Someone has done something that has damaged someone else. And the whole idea of going to court in a case like that is to do what the law calls make the other person whole again. You try to calculate, okay, how much money did they have to pay for their medical bills? How much money did they lose from lost time at work? How much money do they have to be paid if we could calculate if they're emotional distress? You're trying to give back to the person what you stole away unfairly. And if we think of debt like that, as relational, as something that we are taking away wrongly from God because He is owed all of our obedience, then I think that's a pretty helpful way to think about sin. Not quite as helpful, in my view, as the last way, which I think is the most important way for us in our time and place to think about what sin is. I called it sin as betrayal. I could have called it different things. I could have called it sin as unfaithfulness, sin as rejection. Here's the idea. This is the part of the sermon when I embarrass myself. So I don't know about you, but when I'm at home, I am a different person. I'm not dressed up nice to go out. I quickly walk into the house and I put on my pajama pants that have polar bears on them and I start singing off key and I start whistling and I start acting like a crazy man. And part of that is I have some really bad habits. One of them is I just whistle constantly. It drives my family crazy. Another one, periodically out of the blue, this is humiliating. I don't know why I'm telling you. I'm telling you this for a good reason. It helps illustrate my point. I will blurt out Masa's name at the top of my lungs. I'll be like, Masa! And I'll say all sorts of nicknames. I don't know why. I don't know why I do that. And it freaks Quincy out. She'll be sitting at the table working on a puzzle, and all of a sudden she hears this, Matt! Like, what? What? So she's told me, in no uncertain terms, at first gently and then not so gently, that, you know, that, that alarms her, that, that scares her. That, and, and I keep doing it. I keep doing it. And she said, and this is what really provoked my thought in many ways on this sermon today. She said, you know, when you do that, I feel like you're disrespecting me. And I thought immediately, disrespecting you, no, know, it's a bad habit. I'm not thinking about you. I, I'm just kind of operating on autopilot. I'm doing something that's sort of second nature. And, but here's the thing that her point that her comment made me think about. I don't know about how it works with humans. There's probably a better way to think about it. I do know I shouldn't do it. I do know that I think the best way to think about it is probably what Romans talks about, as stronger and weaker, and we should accommodate someone. We should not try to, I mean, even if we think their request is unreasonable, which hers is not at all, we should, we should love. We should orient our actions in a way that is loving to someone, even if it inconveniences us. Yes, in the human realm, that's probably the right way to think about, but, but here's what her comments got me to think about. When it comes to God the framework she was giving is exactly right. And my response is so revealing. And that's sin. She said, you're disrespecting me by your actions. And my response was, oh, I wasn't thinking about you. I was just acting. I think that's what sin is. I think that's what sin is. In the literature about caring for the environment or what Christians have been calling creation care, a major point that's made is about language. When we call it nature, we act one way. When we call it creation, we should act another way. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to ourselves and what sin is in our lives. We are not beings, living beings. Instead, we are created creatures. We are not humans. Instead, we are children of God. So our actions actually have to take into account, be oriented towards, be mindful of the one who created us, the one who gave us life. It is no excuse to say, God, I'm not disrespecting you. I wasn't thinking about you. That's not the response of a creature to the one who created him or her. The Anchor Bible Dictionary gives this definition of sin, which I thought was pretty darn good. Sin implicates the human being as a creature of choice in a contest of wills and allegiances. The autonomous will of the creature versus the authority and will of the creator. So here's the point. If sin is about relationship, if sin is about identity, if sin is about not obeying as creatures, the one who created us, then I don't think it's a good thing to talk about it primarily as a matter of breaking the law, breaking the codes of law. In fact, the Bible gives us all sorts of reasons why that's not the best way to think about sin. In Genesis 13, 13, the people of Sodom were great sinners against the Lord. Guess what? The law hadn't been given yet. They were still sinners. In Romans 2, 14, Paul writes, when Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these though not having the law or a law to themselves, is sin all about the law? No. You can sin before the law is given. You can sin even if you don't know what the law is and it's not even sort of part of your worldview. How about this one? The end of that letter, Paul writes, but those who have doubts are condemned if they eat because they do not act from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Is that about breaking a law? It's about more than breaking some written code. Sin goes far beyond breaking the law. It's why I chose the passage I chose for today. There's a lot of passages I could have chosen. This is one of my favorites for thinking about the best way to talk about sin. I won't read the whole thing again, but I want to point out a couple features. First, who is Israel Here to God? The child. God's child. God's child. What does Israel do? What's the nature of their sin at its core? Look at the first part of verse 7. My people are bent on turning away from me. That's sin. It's turning away from God. The thing I love about Hosea this is it's not just about parent-child. Hosea also talks about husband-wife, how Israel is an unfaithful wife who has acted as a prostitute, as an adulteress. So here's the thing. I love this. Hosea does what Jesus will later do himself. Hosea does this and Jesus does this. Hosea and Jesus both make us realize that God is everything to us. God is parent, God is spouse, God is every relationship that matters and more. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What does this mean? This means that God is everything to us relationally. Here's where I want to conclude. I think the reason it's important to talk about sin like this to talk about sin as a matter of relationship, to talk about sin as disobedience, to talk about sin as rejection, is that I, I don't think that sin, when we think about it, when we talk about it, when we experience it, when we repent of it, is meant to start and stop with guilt. It may start there, and maybe rightly so. But I think where it's meant to end is with appreciating who we actually are and who God actually is. That's what sin should point us to. Amen.